Well, <clears throat> good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to be with you. Um, this is actually my first time out because in addition uh, to having the title of elder, I am the church's Zoom master, which means that I normally don't make it out. I'm sitting in my kitchen um, controlling the hymns. I have to say there's a slight funereal vibe here this morning, uh, so we'll try and cheer ourselves up. Um, we're continuing our series uh, on the Pilgrim Way. And we began the series by thinking about a man called Abraham. And Abraham had been called from the city of Ur, uh, which was a very comfortable place for its day, and he became a pilgrim. So he spent the rest of, the rest of his life in tents. I could not imagine a hor more horrid fit. But he was doing it because he was looking for another city, an eternal city, a city built by God. Now, the thing is, Abraham had a very clear idea where he was heading. He, his journey through life had a spiritual purpose. But this morning, we are going to meet someone whose motivation to leave her home and to journey into the wilderness was very different. So if you have a Bible, turn with me uh, to Genesis chapter 16. We're just going to read, to begin with, a few verses from Genesis chapter 16, verses 7 and 8. Genesis 16 verses 7 and 8. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarah, she answered. We'll come back to the rest of the passage in a moment. Abraham, I don't need to tell you, is a towering figure in biblical history. But he did make mistakes, and most of them were made in his family life. Now, Abraham was no religious hypocrite like some of the so-called Christian celebrities who have strutted the world stage for a while. Abraham's faith was genuine and heartfelt, but in many ways he was quite a weak man. Now, the background to Genesis 16 is a rather unsavory affair. I was actually delighted to see the children leave. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> God had promised Abraham uh, and his wife a child, a child who would be called Isaac in due course. But the years went by and no child came along, and Abraham's wife, Sarah, became a little impatient. She thought God's scheme was a good scheme, it was a great scheme, but it looked as if God needed a bit of a helping hand. And so she came up with a coming plan. She had an Egyptian servant girl called Hagar, and she persuaded Abraham to take Hagar as a sort of second wife. Now, we need to understand, of course, when the Bible records something, it does not approve of it. If you want an argument against polygamy, read Genesis. And Jacob's domestic arrangements just don't bear thinking about. Anyway, Sarah persuades Abraham to take Hagar as a sort of second wife, a concubine. And in his weakness, Abraham agrees to play along with Sarah's scheme, and Hagar gets pregnant. Now, I don't think it's the least surprising in that ancient culture that Hagar's ego then started to explode, and she began to look down upon her mistress, Sarah. So Sarah threw a bit of a temper tantrum in front of Abraham, and he again shows weakness, and he allows Sarah to throw the girl out into the wilderness. So in the verses we have just read, a young, pregnant woman was wandering alone in the desert. Hagar must have felt abandoned. Ultimately, Sarah's power had won the day. She had been 
thrown out into the desert like an unwanted dog thrown out of the window of a car. But Hagar was not alone. The text tells us that God searched for her and found her sitting by a spring of water on a desert trail. And he asked her, where have you come from and where are you going? And I'm sure you noticed from the reading that Hagar was only able to answer the first part of the question. I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she said. She knew that she had run away from Sarah, but she had no idea where she was heading to. I think there's something really poignant in that moment. Sometimes in life, we just run away. We define progress in terms of reacting against the past rather than having a sensible goal for the future. Hagar's flight was, of course, understandable, but it was profoundly unwise. She was about to die in the desert. I sometimes sit beside young adults who have made decisions that at their heart are all about running away. Running away from a situation rather than dealing with it. Now, Hagar never sorted out her relationship with Sarah. I don't think it's unfair to a a, a titan of, of biblical history that Sarah is, but I don't think it unfair to say that Sarah ended up causing real damage to Hagar's life. But at this moment, we'll get to the second half of her story in a moment, but at this moment, God tells Hagar to go back home. She has to make an attempt to restore the relationship with her employer. And I think there's an important principle there. It is so tempting to just run away from a bad relationship. But we have to make at least one serious attempt to fix it. Now, some of you will know the New Testament takes a really keen interest in this story. The Apostle Paul uses the struggle between Hagar's son, who's called Ishmael, and Sarah's son, Isaac, and he uses it as an allegory. See, when you think about it, Ishmael was the product of human ingenuity. He was the result of Sarah's cunning scheme. But Isaac was the child of the promise. He was the result of faith. So Paul uses the struggle between the two boys as a picture, an allegory, of the struggle between the works of the flesh and the works of faith. But it is an allegory. In other words, we shouldn't assume that somehow Hagar and her son as individuals were less important to God than Sarah and Isaac. In fact, a great deal of the biblical text in Genesis is concerned with the love and protective care that God shows to a vulnerable, young, single mother. God's care is contrasted brilliantly by the author uh, with Sarah and Abraham's lack of concern. In the earlier verses, if we've taken time to read them, Abraham and Sarah never call the girl by her name. She's just the servant, or in actual fact, the slave. But God calls her by name. Reminds me of John 10, when the good shepherd says that his sheep know him, for he calls them by name. I think there's a little hint of an allusion to this moment in John 20 when the risen Christ calls Mary by her name. And this ancient story allows us to see the care which God has for us as individuals. Now, many of you will know that this ancient story is famous for a reason I haven't talked about yet. So let's read on in the story. After God has found the girl in the desert and has spoken to her about her situation and about her future, Hagar says this in verses 13 and 14. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That's why the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. Now we need to appreciate the poignancy of these words. Hagar felt abandoned like a piece of litter swirling in the gutter. And she felt invisible as if no one cared about her or even saw her. 
There's a terrible moment in the New Testament when a wealthy man just steps over a beggar named Lazarus. He doesn't even acknowledge him as a human being. The beggar was invisible to the wealthy man. So the name Hagar gives to God recognizes that he never takes us for granted. We are never invisible to him. He always sees us, sees our pain and our hurt, our feelings of worthlessness. And I think I'm right in saying that this is the only time in all of Scripture when a human being gets to name God. This young single mother is given the supreme privilege of revealing to us that God is El Roy, the God who sees me. And it is such an important aspect of God to know, particularly in this culture. You see, we live in a society where paparazzi crowd around celebrities. The flash of cameras is blinding to those who walk the red carpet. Journalists hang on every word of the rich and the powerful. But for many people who are not young, attractive, wealthy, or powerful, there is a feeling of invisibility in this culture. And I think that feeling has been highlighted by the current pandemic. An elderly widow sits in her little apartment and watches the world go by from her window. And she wonders if anybody would notice if she passed away. The Beatles wrote a brilliant song called Eleanor Rigby. I think it's by far their best song. And the chorus says, all the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Someone pointed out to me a few months ago that there's a link between the story of Hagar and the, and the teaching that the Lord Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord talks a lot about being seen. Now, we're not going to take time to read it now. We studied it recently as a church. But let me remind you that the chapter begins with what I think is a hilarious picture of someone going into the temple uh, to give money to the poor. And he hires a pair of trumpeters to herald his entrance so that everyone can see his good works. Now, the modern-day equivalent of those trumpeters is, of course, Instagram. The Pharisee in Matthew 6 was virtue signaling. <clears throat> and our culture spends a great deal of its time virtue signaling. The Lord gives three illustrations uh, in, in His Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. He gives three illustrations of this wrong-headed principle. The first is about giving money to the poor. Uh, the second is about public prayer. Um, in, in the second case, people parade their virtue by giving long-winded, impressive prayers. They want others to see their religiosity. And then the final illustration is about fasting. And here the virtue signalers want other people to see the pain and sacrifice. So if you put the three illustrations together, you see people who are desperate for others to see their good works, their religious fervor, and their painful sacrifices. And the whole idea behind those three pictures is the idea of being seen. Our culture assumes that in order to matter, we must be seen. Now here's the crucial point. There is a sense in which that is true. The notion of being seen is an essential part of humanness. But the crucial point is this. Who is doing the seeing? Time and time again in Matthew 6, the Lord Jesus contrasts the admiration of strangers with the approving look of our Father in heaven. He sees what is done in secret. He says that repeatedly. I'm going to quote you the motif that occurs at the end of each of the Lord's three case studies. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. I think Hagar must smile every time she hears those words because she learned that secret 
to being seen thousands of years ago. God sees you. He values you. He watches your quiet devotion, your unseen service that you don't trumpet all over the place. He hears your private prayers. He knows the pain you conceal in your heart. He is the God who sees. And because your Father in heaven sees you, you will never be invisible. I'm becoming increasingly convinced that social media is a cancer that is destroying the mental well-being of Generation Z. We seem to have stopped sharing our real lives together. Now we present our lives to each other. Or rather, we present carefully curated images of our lives to each other. But rather than going on an enjoyable rant against social media, something I do enjoy, it might be more helpful if I led your thinking about the psychology that lies at the root of the social media culture. And it's obvious when viewed in the light of this ancient story, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok are trying to fulfill the basic human need of being seen. And I think that leads to an important insight. The admiration of strangers isn't just wrong. The admiration of strangers is a counterfeit. In other words, we shouldn't just dismiss it as a bad thing. The idea of being seen, of being appreciated and valued is an, a vitally important aspect of the human condition. So social media platforms are actually appealing to a basic human need. But Christianity's unique and beautiful solution is to hold out the real thing rather than the counterfeit. When strangers admire you, they don't love you. Because to be loved, you have to be known. But our Father in heaven knows us intimately, and he loves us. So being seen by him, valued by him, appreciated by him is infinitely more valuable than 100 likes on a profile picture. So we can set aside the anxiety that comes from treating our lives as a piece of performative art and instead rest in the fact that we are fully known and truly loved by God. So we thought about the danger of running away from the problems in our lives, and then we considered this life-changing truth of El Roy, the God who sees you. He values you and knows you. That truth can rescue your life, particularly at those moments when you feel invisible and unappreciated. But Hagar has one final lesson to teach us. The girl never sorted out her relationship with Sarah. I said earlier that Sarah ended up causing real damage to Hagar's life. And you see that in chapter 21, when Sarah once again drives Hagar out of the family home. This time, Abraham, wringing his hands impotently, gives, her, gives the girl resources for her journey through the desert. But of course, those resources run out. The food and the water run out. And we encounter Hagar sobbing. That's what the text says. Sobbing as she sits in the desert. She can't bear to watch her son die from thirst. So she moves maybe 30 meters away and waits for Ishmael to die. But God intervenes again. And this time, he opens her eyes so that she can see a well of fresh water. And she rushes to pour the life-saving water into her son's mouth. And she gains the strength to go on in her own journey. Now, the symmetry between those two experiences is obvious, isn't it? In Genesis 16, it's God who sees us. But in Genesis 21, Hagar is given the capacity to see. God has provided the resources she needed for her pilgrim way. She just couldn't see it. And so she had decided to give up and sit down to die. The resources had always been there. She just hadn't seen them. 
I might be accused of over-spiritualizing the text here, but it is so easy on our pilgrim journey to be overcome with self-pity and despair. Self-pity is an addictive drug. And sometimes we just want to sit down and give up. And in moments like that, we forget that God has provided the resources we need for our pilgrim way. He doesn't just see us and appreciate us. He provides for us through the really tough times. Now, let's not get sentimental here. Hagar's situation was horrible. Compared to the comfort and security of Abraham's tents, this girl was almost destitute. But God got her through that tough time, and she went on to nurture a son who became the head of a great nation. So allow me in all gentleness to address those in the room or listening to me online, the people who feel abandoned and hopeless. When was the last time you opened your Bible? I don't mean to do a structural overview of Ezekiel uh, or First Chronicles, but maybe to read a psalm or a well-loved passage from John's Gospel. You see, sometimes the well of water is sitting right in front of us, but we cannot see it. We cannot see the provisions God has made for our pilgrim journey. And I don't need to tell you that words on a piece of paper are not the end goal here. The Word of God, inspired and breathed out by God, is used by the Spirit of God to refresh the soul. So take that mental image away with you, that image of Hagar pouring that lovely cold water gently into her son's mouth, and maybe start to long for the presence of Christ to refresh your own soul. So this little devotional study is over. Hagar had the supreme privilege of naming God as Elroy, the God who sees. But God did more than watch over Hagar. He gave her the resources needed to sustain her and her family on their pilgrim trail. She just needed to see them. I'm going to pray, and then David will introduce our final hymn. Our Father in heaven, we confess to you that there are times in our lives when we feel a little like Hagar, abandoned, lost in security, sometimes running away from things but with no clear idea where we're going to. And in a cruel world like that, a world that can make so many people feel invisible, we thank you that you are the God who sees. And so we just pray in the quietness of this moment, whether people are sitting at home or whether they're sitting here in this church building, that you would reinforce that truth in their hearts, that they are valued by the God of this universe, that you see us as dearly loved children, and your desire is to help us develop into sons and daughters of the Most High. But we thank you at its most simple level that you're the God who sees us, who appreciates us and values us, and we are fully known and truly loved. We pray, Lord, that 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 psychological, that existential security will take root in our hearts so that we can serve the audience of one. And Father, we pray for those who are going through a horrendous time at the moment, who feel tempted just to sit down and give up. Pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes as you did to Hagar's eyes so that they could see the resources that you have given us, the resources of the companionship of Christ, the indwelling Spirit of God who takes the Word of God and applies it to us and brings us to the Father who hears us with joy. 
And so we pray, Lord, that they would find in you, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the resources needed to take another step along the desert way. We ask now, Lord, that you part us in your fear and with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.